But welcome to RUF, everyone. Uh, at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Uh, that means that there's something fundamentally in us that thinks that we relate to God based on how we're doing or something that we bring to the table. And so we think that when we're doing poorly, um, when we mess up in unavoidable ways, that God couldn't possibly love us. And conversely, we think that when we're doing amazing, that God is lucky to have us. Uh, but the gospel cuts through that, and it tells us that the way that we stand before God is because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that's the only security that really is available to anyone, and it's the best security that we have. So um, every semester in RUF, we do a sermon series. This semester, we've been going through one in the Old Testament, like I mentioned, called Every Story Whispers His Name. Uh, we're coming to the end. So we've got this week and then uh, two weeks after in our series. So we're, we're getting close to the end. Uh, but our theme has been that the Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus and it gives us wisdom for the modern world. And what that means is that when Jesus read what we call the Old Testament, what he would have just called the Bible, uh, when he read that, he saw his own reflection. He saw his face. So if we want to understand Jesus, then we need to understand the Old Testament. So this week we're going to be looking at a passage that is uh, pretty important to the Old Testament. It's God's covenant with David. Uh, so David's a popular figure throughout the Bible. Uh, this is kind of the, the climax of God's story with David. So let me pray for us, and we can go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that you would uh, meet us here tonight. Uh, Lord, you, in your wisdom, have spoken uh, and recorded it for us. And Lord, we, uh, we do well to attend to your words. So I pray that you would... Uh, just help us to pay attention to what it is that you're saying to us. Um, Lord, you uh, have shown yourself to be eager um, to share who you are. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be eager to learn. Uh, Lord, will you send your spirit, help us to see Jesus, um, and in seeing him to be transformed. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so has anyone here seen the uh, 2008 romantic comedy, 27 Dresses? Yes? Okay. Uh, a couple people. Okay, so fun fact, I saw this movie on my first date ever. Um, it was not with Molly. Uh, not everything works out, but that's okay. Um, I'm glad this one didn't work out. That's a whole other story. But uh, the movie, 27 Dresses. Okay, so this is a, it's a classic story of kind of the saying, uh, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. It's a story of a woman who has been a bridesmaid in 27 weddings. So she has hence 27 dresses. And she's the classic, like, hopeless romantic. She's always, um, like, she's just captivated by weddings. She loves them. She loves being a part of them. She loves celebrating her friends who are getting married. And she's obsessed with this writer uh, who's uh, named Kevin, played by James Marsden. The main character is Jane, played by Katherine Heigl. And they're, like, complete opposites. So she is this hopeless romantic, and he is a total cynic. Uh, but he's a wedding writer. It's his job to write about weddings, and he's really good about it, but he doesn't believe anything that he writes. So they're kind of these total opposites. And they finally, uh, you know, it's a rom-com, so they end up falling in love. There's this scene where they're at a bar, and they're talking about their favorite part of a wedding. And they actually agree they have the same favorite part of a wedding. Jane says it this way. She says, you know how the bride makes her entrance, and everybody turns to look at her. She says, that's when I look at the groom. Because his face says it all, you know, the pure love there. 
And then Kevin says it a little differently, but he says the same thing. He says, I like to look at the poor sucker getting married, even though I think he's crazy, because he always looks really happy. Uh, This moment in a wedding that both Jane, who is this romantic, and Kevin, who is a cynic, they agree that there is something magical about this moment in a wedding, where you can turn around and you can see the groom, and, and there's no hiding. Like, you see exactly who he is. You see his heart on display. So this sort of moment, that's actually what's going on in this passage of scripture that we're looking at. This is a moment where we can turn back and look and see God's heart on display. This passage describes something that is a lot like marriage. It's a covenant between God and humanity. And covenant is a very important word throughout the Bible. It's used a whole lot. And it just means an agreement between God and humanity that is more personal than a contract. And it's more permanent than an ordinary relationship. And it's one of the central ideas throughout all of scripture. And as we look at this covenant, it gives us a glimpse of God's heart. It shows us who God is. So as we proceed through this passage, I just want you to keep that image in your mind of glancing back at a groom. Glancing back at a groom when his bride is coming to him and seeing an image of his heart. That's what this passage does for us, but with God. So I want to just look at this in two headings. So first, God comes down to us. And second, God raises us up. So God comes down to us, and God raises us up. So first off, this passage shows us that God comes down to us. So where do we see that in this passage? I think in the first verse we see here, it says, Now when the king, who is David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, and then it goes on in verse 3, And Nathan said to the king, uh, Why am I emphasizing king? If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about David and Goliath and how Israel had desired to have a king so that they could be like all of the other nations. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, that was not God's original plan for his people. His original plan for his people was that he would be their king. In fact, right before he gives them the law, which is kind of another big climactic moment in the Old Testament, uh, the people come to God and they say, all that you command, we will do. And it's like the high point in all of the people of God's history. Like this is their best moment because they're declaring, you are our king. We're going to do whatever you say. So this is the high point, but they eventually they run away from that. They keep crying out for a king. They keep asking for someone to defend them. They want to be like the nations around them. And God acknowledges this as a rejection of him. He says in 1 Samuel 8 that the people have rejected the God as their king, but he allows it. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, they chose Saul, but this didn't go well. Saul couldn't protect them from from the giant Goliath. But then God chose David, and it goes very well. Uh, What's going on here in this part of the passage? I think uh, God acknowledging the people's desire for a king. It's a bit like, um, I don't know if you've seen that scene in the office, it's where they're doing improv And Michael Scott shows up at improv, and he has this one thing that he's always introducing into the story, which is, if you've seen it, uh, he he thinks adding a gun to a story always makes it so much better, right? He's always bringing a gun into it, and it's so annoying, it ruins the improv. That's like what Israel is doing when they're asking for a king. It's that level of annoying. But you see what God's doing here, God is an improv master, He's like one of those, if you've ever seen the show, Whose Line Is It Anyways? You just throw something at them, and somehow they weave it together and make it more hilarious. That's what God is doing here. He's taking this, frankly, dumb suggestion, 
And he's weaving it into his redemptive story. He's saying, you want a king? Okay, I can work with that. And then God gives them his chosen king. And he shows him how his king is going to be different. God is taking up Israel's demand into his sovereign purposes. He's going to employ their desire within his covenant program. Uh, But second, I think God comes down uh, in more than one way in this passage. I think we see this also in verse 6. God says to David, David at the beginning of this passage decides that he wants to build a house or a temple for God uh, because God has built him a house. And then God responds and says, well, David, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Uh, What he's describing there is called the tabernacle. It's the tent that God had dwelled, he had lived in, in the middle of his people. So just imagine this, the God who spoke the earth into existence is living in a tent in the wilderness with his people. Um, that's That's quite a contrast. Like, Why in the world would the God of the universe lower himself and live in a tent with a nomadic people? He did it so that he could be with them. It's the only possible reason. You see, this is what God does. He comes down and he lowers himself to get on our level. Uh, This reminds me of another movie, another rom-com. There's a theme here. Uh, 2004 one this time, Along Came Polly. Anybody seen this one? Okay, this was a really good one in high school. I'm feeling my age here now that nobody's seen any of these. Um, But Along Came Polly, it tells the story of a guy named Reuben Pfeffer who's played by Ben Stiller. Uh, falling uh, in love with a woman named Polly Prince, who's played by Jennifer Aniston, um, who coincidentally looks the exact same as she did then. I don't know how. Um, But Ben Stiller is kind of this uptight insurance analyst, and she's the complete opposite. She's like a free spirit who does whatever she wants. Uh, But Ben Stiller, throughout the uh, the whole story, he does all of this stuff that is so antithetical to who he is because he's so in love with this woman. Uh, Despite the fact that he has irritable bowel syndrome, he goes and eats spicy Moroccan food, and it wrecks him. Uh, Despite the fact that he's a germaphobe, he goes and he eats food off the ground. And despite the fact that he's a terrible dancer, he goes to a dance club and he even takes lessons. See, this, this movie, I think, is a good picture of God's heart toward us. That God, There's nothing that God is not willing to do. There's nothing that God is not willing to do in order to be with us. That's God's heart toward us. He, he comes down to us. He gets down on our level. He'll do anything to be with us. And I wonder, is that something that is kind of in your category for who God is? Like, Do you believe that about God? Do you, do you practically, is that on a felt level, something that you believe to be true about God? Do we think that God is the sort of, the sort of uh, God who will do anything to be with us? Uh, Throughout scripture, this is who God shows himself to be. He is a God who uh, comes down to us. He voluntarily condescends. And of course, the clearest picture of this is Jesus. Jesus, in Jesus, God himself had to learn how to speak. You ever think about that? In Jesus, God himself had filthy diapers. In Jesus, God himself had to take his first steps. He had to deal with sickness and loss. But even more than that, he had to deal with death. You see, this is God's heart towards you. There is nothing that he won't do to be with you. 
And this is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. It says in the New Testament, we love because he first loved us. We move towards God because he first moved towards us. So God comes down to us. But second, God raises us up. So this is the second glimpse that we get of God's heart here. So God raises us up by giving these promises that we see in this passage. So God gives these promises to David, who is God's king. And you may be thinking, like, what are promises that are given to a king thousands of years ago? Like, what does that have to do with me? Or even, what does that have to do with the general people at the time? Like, these are promises that God gives to David, not to Israel. Like, what's going on there? Uh, when my wife and I uh, had Louise, uh, we met with our financial planner because we're old and we have that. And uh, one of the things that they advised us to do was to start setting some money away for, for Louise, which we started doing. And the way that they told us to do that was through something called a custodial account. Anyone heard of this? Uh, so a custodial account is an account that is in my name. It says Thomas Kuhn on there. Actually, it says Michael Kuhn because that's my first name. Don't want to freak anybody out. That's actually my first name. Uh, it says Michael Kuhn on there. So it's in my name, but that money is designated for Louise. I'm allowed to access it. I'm allowed to put money in it, but it's for Louise. And that's how this covenant works. It, it, this covenant is for us. It is for the people of God, but it's in David's name. It comes through him. So what's this covenant that God makes all about? Uh, there's a Bible scholar named Dale Ralph Davis. It's quite a name. Uh, he sums this covenant up helpfully. He says it this way. He says th of this covenant, death does not annul it, sin cannot destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. In other words, God here is making a death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof promise to his people. So it's death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. What do I mean by death-proof? Uh, we see in verses 12 and 13, the Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promise that God is making to David, it doesn't just have to do with David himself. It actually has to do with a line that is coming from him. God is making a covenant with a line of people who are going to be the king over his people. And remember, he's taking the, their desire for a king up into his redemptive purpose. God is saying that this promise he is making, it's not going to be destroyed by the fact that David is a limited human being who will die. And he did die. He's saying that God is going to continue to be faithful. He's going to use David's line to preserve his people. So it's death proof. But second off, it's sin proof. He says in verses 14 to 15, I will be to your offspring a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So God promises to David that his son will be God's son also. God is saying here that I am going to adopt your son. That there is going to be this father and son relationship between me, God, the covenant God of the world, and your son. He's going to adopt him up into his family. And in the ancient world, to be a son, it doesn't just mean uh, to be blood or to be, have a special relationship. It means that you're going to bear a resemblance. It means that this king that, that he's talking about is going to bear a resemblance to God. He's going to be godlike in the way 
that he rules. And he goes so far as to say that even when David's line, even when the people in his line sin, it's not going to destroy this promise. It's sin-proof. God is going to discipline him as a son. But then third, it's also time-proof. It says in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He's saying here that even time is not going to turn away God's love. It repeats forever, again and again. Your throne will be established forever. It's not only going to be in the present, but it's going to head into all eternity. So God gives his people here a promise that cannot be destroyed by death, that cannot be destroyed by sin, that cannot be destroyed by time. And so the people, as they receive this promise, they've got to be looking to the king to be this, the fulfillment here. But the problem is that David, even though he was great, and even though Solomon, his son, was great, there would come a time where there was no king in Israel again. There would come a time when David's throne physically would sit empty. And so God's people had to deal with, was God lying when he gave us this promise? Or is he talking about something else? What's going on here? It seems like there was never anyone who could fulfill this covenant promise in David's line. Um, I'm a big fan of, of the Masters. Uh, Sarah Francis was just there. Um, it is a golf tournament. It's really great. If you don't know this, the winner gets a, a green jacket. That's like the thing. They get a green jacket. Uh, it's kind of weird to explain to people who don't like golf because it just seems so normal to me. But it's really strange that you win a golf tournament, they give you a jacket. But in any case, that's what happens. Uh, but in 1963, Jack Nicklaus, who uh, a lot of people think is the greatest golfer of all time, uh, he's won six Masters tournaments. He won his first one in 1963. He was 23 years old. He was kind of short and a little bit stocky. And uh, the way that they kind of evaluate the size of the person who wins, like because they have to have a bunch of green jackets on hand, mm -hmm. they just kind of eyeball it. And so whoever eyeballed it maybe needed like some glasses or something because they chose for this like kind of shorter, stockier guy a 46 long jacket, which is huge. And so if you go back and look at the picture, Jack Nicholas is wearing this thing. That, the way he described it, he said it looks like an overcoat. Like it was enormous on him. You see, okay, Jack Nicholas had won the Masters. He was the undisputed person. It, this jacket was for him, but it actually wasn't cut for him. Okay, I think the same thing can be true of David's line here, okay? This promise that is given, this death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof promise, it was given to David but the jacket didn't just fit. The jacket wasn't cut for him. The jacket was cut for Jesus. We see this taken up in uh, Luke chapter 1. Uh, the angel of the Lord says to Mary at this time, she says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, the jacket fits Jesus perfectly. Jesus is the king that this passage is talking about. He is the one who is death-proof. He is the one who is sin-proof. He is the one who is eternal, who is time-proof. And we need a king like Jesus. But you might be thinking, uh, I don't know if king is a felt need for many of us. Uh, we do live in the United States of America. We have a history of kind of throwing off kings. We throw their tea into the uh, Boston Harbor. Um, why do we need a king? 
Why is that a felt need? I wonder, how do you feel about death? How do you feel about it? I think we spend so much time trying to run from the fact that we're all going to die. We spend so much time trying not to think about it. And I think it's because something about it feels wrong. Something about it feels just cosmically wrong. People shouldn't just stop. People shouldn't just go away. Or how do you feel about sin? Maybe you're not ready to use that word. What about failure? How do you feel about your shame, your sin, your failure? I think we long to know that our failure is not going to destroy us. We long to know that the things that we do wrong aren't going to follow us and ruin us. How do you feel about time? Do you find yourself lamenting how fast time is passing? I think deep down, we know that this shouldn't be all that there is. Friends, Jesus is a king who conquers death for us. Jesus, that's what we're talking about this whole week. That's what happened on Good Friday, and we celebrate the final victory on Sunday. Jesus took death, and he used it to beat death to death. I'll say that again. (laughs) Jesus took death, and he used it to beat death to death. What that means is we don't have to be afraid. That means is that Jesus has conquered it. He is king over death. That just means that death is just the beginning. We have a hope that goes beyond it. We have a resurrection hope. But Jesus is also the king who conquers sin for us. He did this by taking the penalty for our sin and giving us his righteousness. And because of this, we don't have to live in fear that our failure would destroy our future hope because our hope is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. But Jesus is also the eternal king that we long for. Trusting in him is eternal life. We don't have to live like we're running out of time. Because Jesus is the Lord of time, we can slow down, and we can live in the moment. We don't have to live so anxiously. This passage does a lot of talking about a king, talking about God's king. And what I I want you to see most of all is that Jesus is this king. He's the king that we long for. He's the king who comes down to us. He's the king who raises us up. And when we place our faith in him, meaning when we make him the most central, important thing in our life, we are given a promise that is death-proof, that is sin-proof, and that is eternal. And that's a hope worth having. Let's pray.